Well, amen. There is no substitute for attentive repetition. Constant repetition carries conviction. Repetition of the same thought or physical action develops into a habit which repeated frequently enough becomes an automatic reflex. It is frequent repetition that produces natural tendency. Those are all quotes from famous and not so famous people who all understood the importance of repetition. They knew from experience that repetition builds pathways that help us get to places quicker, both figuratively and, of course, literally. It's a means, repetition is a means by which things are moved from our conscious to our subconscious. They're moved from our thought to fluency and, of course, moved from, um, it. well, it creates accessibility because over the long term, it makes imprints on our memory. And for some... Let's be honest, repetition is monotonous. It can be mechanical, especially uh, if what is being repeated is not real important or if we don't think it's important or if we think it's unnecessary. Uh, Some even fear repetition. And yet for others, it can be challenging. It can be satisfying if what is being repeated is deemed necessary and important. And of value and significant. Some even find repetition to be challenging. And I begin there because these words from the writer of Hebrews. They are different. But they're the same. They're different here in chapter 3 than they are in chapter chapter 2. But yet they're the same. Um, He begins in a similar way as he did in chapter 3 in his comparison uh, that he he makes with Jesus is, is different. Yet at the same time, the point that he's making and that he's stressing is very similar, if not identical, to what he's just said previously. And this repetition is very, very beneficial for us. And he knows that. God knows that. He's inspired the writer to write. And so he knows that we're in need of this repetition. He knew that the readers at the time were in need of that repetition. And so, yes, he does compare Jesus to Moses rather than to angels. But the bottom line is the same. Jesus is still better. And because Jesus is better, the writer says he is the one that we are to consider. We are to consider Jesus. But the questions that we have are, well, what does considering Jesus look like? Why should we? And when should we? What what should we or what is considering Jesus look like? Why should we do it? And when should we do it? And, and so in the back of your bulletin, there is no outline there at the note taking guide. You got plenty of space because I ran those off earlier in the week and didn't have the outline quite yet. So it causes me to repeat what I've just said so you can write it down. What is considering Jesus? Why should we consider Jesus and when should we consider Jesus?
Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you, by your spirit, allow us tonight, in these brief moments that we have, uh, to consider Christ and consider him in such a way that our souls expand. And as our souls expand, may he, of course, expand. Open our eyes and ears and enlighten our minds that we may find him bigger this week than we did last. May we consider him more fully and completely. And as we do, help us to strive to enter into the rest that you have provided for us in and through him. And I pray these things in the most excellent name of Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, in whom we hope. Amen. All right, so look at verse 1 of chapter 3. In verse 1, the writer says, consider Jesus. And again, naturally the question is, what does that even mean? What does it mean to consider Jesus? The word itself means, of course, to consider. It means to contemplate. It means to look more closely at. It means to fix one's eyes upon. It means to be attentive to. It means to fully occupy one's mind with. It means to be grasped. Or accepted. Full of meaning. Beyond what you or I ever mean when we think or say the word consider. John Owen once said, This is the diligent use of the mind in its considerations, its thoughts, its meditations and conceptions. So as I mentioned a moment ago, the message is the same as it was in chapter 2. He's encouraging his readers who are facing this escalating persecution, who are, we've said, could very possibly be hunkered down in some small house together, worried about their future, and they're being tempted to revert back to the Judaism that they've left. And the author is trying to encourage them to say, look, don't allow the struggles and the temptations to cause you to, to forsake Christ. Allow them to move you toward Him. Move toward the Lord. He wants, he wants those who are reading, including us, to embrace the Lord, not run from the Lord. He wants us to, in the words of chapter 2, pay much closer attention to the Lord Jesus. He wants us to pay attention to what we've heard. He wants us to pay attention to the gospel. And his desire here in speaking these words is to, he wants them to, well, he's expecting from them a definitive action. On their part, that will bring about or lead them to an observable difference. He wants this to matter. And so he's not merely asking them to, to mull it over. He's not asking them to, oh, why don't you reflect and weigh the options? And, or he's not saying something like, hey, have you ever thought about considering Jesus? He's being much more emphatic than that. Right? He, he is, this is an imperative. And that means he's saying emphatically, you need to do this. This is important. You need to consider him. You need to look more closely at. You need to fix your eyes on. You need to be more attentive to. You need to fully occupy your minds with Jesus. And you can almost hear the readers respond because it's the natural question. It's one you may even be asking, even though I've already given it to you. That leads us to the second question, which is why? 
Why should we? And I've already sort of given it away. And he gave it away earlier because he's already said the same thing in different words. But we ask why. Why should we consider him? And in this passage, we've got three reasons. He's very specific. And first, he says we should consider him because of who? And he's writing to them. So he says, all right, consider Jesus. And they say, why should we? And he says, because because of who you are. Because of who you are. In verse 1, he says, he calls them holy brothers. Holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. So he's drawing upon, again, that which he's already said. So he's really repeating himself. And what he said in chapter 2, and what he says is that they, and he included, are sharing in and are partakers of a heavenly calling. In other words, they're children of the Lord. They're children of God. They're brothers and sisters of Christ. They're brothers and sisters of each other. Why? Because God has called them out. He set them apart. He's consecrated them. He's cleansed and purified them. And he's designated them as his. And he did all of that through the suffering substitute. Jesus, who back in chapter 2 was... The writer called their elder brother. And and you remember that he did that because Jesus, as the incarnate son, the only begotten son of the father, shares in their humanity in every way except for sin. But he also shares the same father. So he's human like they are. They share the same father. He has come and it's through him that they've been sanctified. And the language was the sanctifier and the sanctified both share the same father. So they share in their humanity the same origin from Adam. But they also share the same heavenly father. Therefore, they're brothers and sisters in one another. And the Lord, and the Lord says, and the writer of Hebrews says, the Lord is not ashamed to call them brothers. So he's... Brothers, you're holy. Brothers and sisters, you're, you're holy. You're brothers and sisters of the king. So you can look to and trust and follow your older brother. He understands, right? Last week, he understands your temptations. He understands your struggles. He understands the trials that you're in the midst of. He understands the suffering. And having, having been united to him... You are his brothers and sisters. You're sharing and because you're sharing in and partaking of that union, you're in union with one another. What else should you do but consider him? But it's that's not the only reason. He also says, yes, consider him because of who you are. But really, more importantly, consider him because of who he is. Consider him. Because of who he is. He says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. An apostle was someone who was sent by the Lord to speak on his behalf, to represent him, to speak on on God's behalf to his people. So the writer says that Jesus was the apostle. He was the ultimate apostle. God had sent him on his behalf to fully and finally reveal himself. Remember chapter one, fully and finally reveal himself to his people. He brought God out into the open and he came to fulfill a mission that he had been sent to fulfill. And he accomplished that mission. One commentator put it this way. He says he is indeed the first apostle, the great apostle and the source of all apostleship in that his apostleship was prior to and the grounds for all other apostles. 
There was no one like him. But he's not only the apostle, he's also the high priest. And we know from our study of Leviticus, right, we understand that language. He was the one through which a holy God could approach or to meet, come and meet with his people. And he was the one through whom a, a sinful people could approach the Lord, a holy God. So we have the holy and the unholy meeting together through him as the mediator, as that high priest. And he was the high priest greater than Aaron. He was the high, uh, greater than any other high priest because he brought the full and final sacrifice of himself and his blood through whom atonement could be made. So consider yourselves, but consider him. Right? Consider him because of who you are, but consider him because of who he is. But not just who he is, for what he has done and is doing. Right? Consider him because of who you are, consider him because of who Christ is, but also consider him because of what he has done and is doing. He says, consider Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, has much more glory as the builder of a house, has much, much more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So we have the comparison. His, but his focus is on the faithfulness of Christ. Christ was faithful and he was faithful both past and present. And the comparison is very striking. And again, the context helps us understand why the comparison is made and so powerful. He's comparing Jesus to, to the man, basically. Moses was the man. And he's already said that Jesus is better than angels. But now he's, he's really stepping on toes and said Jesus is actually better than Moses. Something that they would hear and something that they would think. And, and, and so he's, he's letting them know, look. Don't go back to the Judaism because Christ is better. Yes, Moses, a man, was a great prophet. He was an apostle. He was a mediator. He was a deliverer. He was the one through whom the law was given. But he was a servant. Servants are important. He did. He served the house of God. But he served the house of God as, as a member of that house. And he was faithful in that service. But we know he wasn't perfectly fa faithful because he did not enter into the promised land. But Jesus, the Lord Jesus was the God man. Right? The Lord Jesus was the prophet, the prophet. He was the apostle. He was the mediator. He was the deliverer. The law that was given through Moses actually pointed to Christ and he fulfilled it. Right? He, Jesus, was the son of the house. He was the builder of the house. He served the house. But he served the house as its sovereign. 
Moses served in the house as a member and servant. Christ served and serves. Moses served in the house. Jesus serves over the house. We hear the language back and forth. Christ was the faithful one. Moses testified to what Christ would do. And Christ came and fulfilled that which had been testified. And we read that Jesus admits that himself in John 5 and Luke 24. Jesus was perfectly faithful. Despite the unfaithfulness of his people. So why should we consider him? We should consider Jesus because of, they should, we should, because of who we are, but because of who Christ is, and because of what He has done and is doing. Because He continues to serve the house faithfully. He has not stopped. He continues to this day. So that brings us to the third question. The third question is when? When do we... When should we consider Jesus? And the writer answers that in the second half of verse 6. He says, And we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And before we answer, I want us to notice a couple things here. First, notice that he says, We are His house. Very important that we notice that present tense and that that is a fact. The writer's communicating that God's house is and always has been the people of God. He's always had a house. It's a corporate community of believers. Under the old covenant, that house was made up of the nation of Israel. But under the new covenant, right, the house is made up of a multinational church. The church is his house. And we know from his testimony of scripture that Christ continues to build that house. Again, it's present tense. It's something that he continues to do. He himself is the cornerstone that sets everything square and straight. And he's building the church upon the testimony, the foundation of the testimony of the apostles. Through the faith that was once handed down to them and to us. And so not only does he dwell within those who believe, not only does he dwell within each believer, not only does he make them individual temples of the Holy Spirit, but he is molding and making and shaping and building us as corporately as a body into a house in which Christ dwells. He dwells in our midst. He's telling them, He dwells in your midst. You are are a divine body corporately. And God has chosen to meet with you there. But second, notice the warning. Notice the affirmation first, but then the warning. He says, we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And we look at that and we say, well, that is definitely a conditional statement. And it is. But it's not a typical if-then statement that we are most familiar with and we can some, sometimes impose upon this particular verse. In other words, he's not saying if they hold fast, then he will make them into his house. Right? He's already affirmed. They are his house. So what he's saying is that they can be assured that they, if they are a part of his house, 
they indeed will hold fast. In other words, the way in which they can be assured of their faith that they have professed in the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that they have expressed in him. If that faith is in fact genuine or they will know that it is in fact genuine if they hold fast to their confidence and their boasting and hope. The easiest way I've tried, the easiest way that I know to put it would be that those who are in his house and of his house, his people will endure to the end. But he uses the writer of Hebrews to encourage. He uses the writer of Hebrews. Yes, they are saved alone. They are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But that faith is tested. As I was sharing with the children, that faith is tested through trials and sufferings and difficulties and persecution. And in, in the midst of that squeezing, in the midst of that fire, that temperature that rises, right? Our faith is proved genuine. And it's, it's proved to be genuine by the willingness of his people to persevere in the midst of and despite those hardships. The bottom line is that the people of God and those who are of his house will hold fast. They will remain confident and boast about their hope in Jesus. God will preserve his house. And the surety of that preservation is our perseverance put on display. For us and for those around us. And again, that's why Peter said, and I shared this with the, with the kids. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So you hear the encouragement that he's giving to, to those in the midst of just... I mean, they don't know which ends up. And so we get back to the question. Having considered those two things, we come back to the question. When do we consider him? And the answer, of course, is all the time. Consistently. Constantly. Unceasingly. Consider the, consider the Lord because it's that constant and consistent and unceasing consideration that will equip you. He says, this is what will equip you to hold fast. Again, as he was in chapter 2, he's not pointing them within themselves to, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or to develop the, the will within themselves to do what they need to do to get by. He's saying, no, consider Jesus. He is what you need to hold fast. Look to Him. So considering Jesus is really non-negotiable if they're going to be consistent. So... As you have already can tell, going back and forth, this is really difficult to separate between, okay, this is written for them, and, and then to come later with, okay, this is how it applies to us, because it's just, we are His readers. 
And these same things are true for us as they were for them. Nothing has changed because, again, Jesus is still building and serving his church of which we're a part. I still want to bring this in. I still want to hone it in a little bit just, you know, for us to think about. And again, three ways, three questions, so three ways. First, let's think about our consideration. Let's think personally about our consideration. How do we do that? What does that look like? Our Kent Hughes provides some helpful advice. He simply says it begins with desire. It calls for concentration. It requires discipline and it takes time. And if we're going to consider Jesus, we we must want to. We must decide to. We must make the time to do it. We must devote effort to do so on a regular basis. In other words, it involves our thoughts, it involves our emotions, it involves our wills, and of course, it involves action. There are things that we can do to consider Him. And like anything else, it improves over time through repetition. Right? It moves from thought right, to fluency. The more, the, the more we consider, the easier considering becomes. The more we choose and act to consider, the more we begin to consider without, I don't want to say without thinking because it takes thinking, but you understand. It becomes natural. Frequent repetition produces natural tendency. And so we need to remember we are holy brothers and sisters. We are partaking of a heavenly calling. We have been called out. Christ is our big big brother. He is our apostle. He is our high priest. He has always been and serving over the house of which we have been made a part. He has successfully and fully and finally accomplished everything through his life, death and resurrection on our behalf. And we are now co-heirs of his. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. We've been cleansed and purified by his blood. Our sins have been atoned for. We've been forgiven. We've been adopted. Our future is guaranteed. We're we're all partakers of that heavenly calling. And so shouldn't we consider him? I think the answer is a resounding yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. The second point, of course, is in regard to the church. When we think of the church, we remember that we too are his house. We're not loners. We need to do away with all of this individualistic kind of thing that's going on these days. All of the mantras that we're hearing. And we not not only need to embrace ourselves, but communicate to the others the fact that the church is not a human institution. It is a divine house that is being built By the son. And he's not going to be thwarted. And as members of that. We're we're connected. Not only to him. But to each other. And we're connected to each other. But we're connected to those of the past. Because there is only one. People. One church. And it's here. As we gather together. That he reveals himself through his word. It's here as we gather together. That. 
that He encourages us and strengthens us through the simple means of grace, word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship. It's here that we're discipled. It's here that we properly worship. It's here that we hear the, His word, His speaking authority, with authority and power. And, and I know the church has its problems, right? Because sinful humans are involved. But we should never, never give up or disparage the church. It remains His. So Christ remains a faithful Son and He loves and serves this body. He is... He is in the process. I mean, let's even think of our particularizing process in this way. He's going to use that process to equip our little church with under shepherds. who are going to pray for and minister to you. He is going to raise up deacons who are going to serve and, and, and take care of the physical needs that we have. Right? They are gifts to us. He's doing that for us. And so we need to look to Him and we need to remain diligent in our consideration of Him. Look to Him at all times. Remember, He is the cornerstone. And we need to make sure that He remains that way in our, in our hearts and our minds. And then we, we need to make sure that we're always looking to remain upon that foundation that He has laid through the faith that has been handed down. And then we need to take care of one another. We need to take care of one another and, and be steadfast in that. To take care of the upkeep of the house, right? Because we're each individual stones of that house. What can we do to help one another to be the living stones that we are? And then finally, let's think about our consistency. As the context of the letter is reminding us every week over and over again that life life is difficult. It's paved this path that we're on is paved with suffering. And it's going to be that way. It's not going to change. And so the purpose of the letter is to encourage us to be consistent and steadfast regardless of the circumstances that we face. We need to look to him rather than our circumstances. Let's and really those circumstances can be can be tough or good. So in other words, he is telling them to remain and he's telling us to remain consistent in our considering of Jesus, even in the tough times. So even when um, when we're tempted to lose hope because things are really tough, maybe when our, our we're tempted for our souls to give way and, and I automatically think of the hymn, you know, when, when our souls give way, we need to remember and consider he is our hope and stay. Right? Because Christ is the solid rock on which we stand. And so we remain consistent in those tough times, but we also need to remain consistent in the good times. And here's what I mean. We have to be honest and know that in the good times, we can be tempted to boast. We can be tempted to boast in ourselves and put confidence in ourselves and give ourselves credit for where we are and, and look and, and think about how we are contributing so much to our success. And what do we do? We fail to consider that apart from him, we are nothing. And that those those things have been given to us by him. We need to. 
to always consider him. Because we have nothing, absolutely nothing to boast in in and of ourselves. So we must continue to boast in him. And so we must always continually consider Jesus. Because it, as we do in the good times, in the tough times, it provides assurance for ourselves and is proof to a watching world that our faith is genuine. We're called to endure to the end. Regardless of what we might be experiencing, we must not shrink back. We must persevere. May it be so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.